Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Not quite here with me, Lucy. You're in your separate bit of chilly weather. I'm in Cold Comfort Farm. How are you doing? <laughs> How brilliant if you were on Cold Comfort Farm. <laughs> More or less. I would not care to inspect my woodshed no, too closely. Don't look at your woodshed. Well, the sun has arrived here finally. So it's absolutely bone-chillingly freezing, but the sun is out and the sky is blue. So that just makes up for absolutely everything. But cheery enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's totally fine as long as as long as there's a bit of sun. We have an awful lot to talk about this week, so we might crack into it. I mean, for a start, it's a kind of packed paper, isn't it? Lots and lots of Irish things I noticed, which I must read in order to properly get my history in order. But there's a piece about Lady Gregory, something about Joyce and the Easter Rising, mm, yeah. a long piece on the Irish and Empire, yep. all sorts of things. What's caught your eye? Well, there's a big piece on the American canon and sort of how it was formed and how it is changing, which is kind of what do we read. There is a piece which I haven't read, but I'm going to because the book sounds completely intriguing. The book's called How Life Works, A User's Guide to the New Biology. So that sounds like something I worth knowing, doesn't know it? how life works. <laughs> yeah. And actually, there's a lovely poem by Catherine, I don't know who this is, Bevis or Beavis, called Everyone Will Be There which I do highly recommend, actually. I very much enjoyed it. And there's a brilliant piece, one more, I can't just mention every single piece in the paper, but uh, by Paul Griffiths about music and uh, remembrance and the Holocaust and how music sort of dealt with and, and remembered and sort of processed, you know, all the horrors and how important it is for that as a form of remembrance. So there's a lot to get your teeth into. There's a lot... And we don't have those that you'll have to go to the paper, as we say, because we have other other delights. Yeah, you have to subscribe. Uh, That's what you week. have to do. You must subscribe, write and tell us uh, what you've thought about anything that you've read. And this week on the podcast, George Berridge comes direct from the cinema, popcorn in hand, to tell us all about four things. Yorgos Lanthimos's adaptation of Alastair Gray's fantastical Victorian novel. And Peter Gagan surveys the rocky road to net zero as it threatens to become the latest wedge issue in UK politics. But first, Alastair Gray's 1992 novel, Poor Things, might seem to his readers unfilmable. It's a wild pastiche of the overreach of Victorian men of science. But director Yorgos Lanthimos, whose previous work includes The Lobster and his reimagining of the life of Queen Anne, the favourite, was captivated by the novel when he first read it and he acquired the film rights many years ago. It's finally come to our screens and George Berridge has been to see it. We're delighted he joins us now. Hi, George. Hello, I'm delighted to be here. Did you think, before you went to see this, unfilmable? I was certainly surprised uh, that they were giving it a go. I, I, I read the book first when I was probably in my mid-20s and when I first read the reports that they were filming out. I, I was deeply surprised they were going to have a crack at it and I did wonder how much of the original material would end up going into there. I must say I read it also in my mid-20s but George this is the sad truth it was coming out then. I was in my mid-20s in 1992 actually a bit older to be truthful. However now Yorgos Lanthimos read it a bit later, in sort of about 2009, I think you say in the piece, don't you? And he wanted to film it straight away. He loved it so much, he sent Alastair Gray a DVD of his film Dogtooth, didn't he? 
Yes, that's correct. And there's a rather good story that goes along with this, that uh, he'd been in touch with Gray and said, I, you know, I'm a huge fan. I'd, I'd love to do an adaptation of uh, Poor Things. Can I send you my one of my films to, to watch? And sure enough, he sends it over to Alistair Gray on DVD, his, uh, his third his third film, I think it is. It's a, it's a Greek language film. And he sends it over to Alistair Gray. And Alistair Gray kind of looks at it and Lanthimos not realizing that he has no DVD player. Uh, and so he takes it over to uh, the home of his friend, Bernard McLavatory, who he plays a monthly chess game with and uh, sits him down and says, I've got this DVD. This chap is interested in doing one of my books for a film. Let's, let's have a look. And so they sit down, they watch, uh, they watch Dogtooth, which touches on some of the same themes that Poor Things does. And uh, McLavatry told him, go ahead, do it. Whatever you do, let him film it. That's right. But obviously it didn't happen for, for many years. And Alistair Gray has died, died a few years ago. Why has it taken so long? Is it is it just a case of it being his other, the other herb? Or could he not get the money together for this? Because the other things seemed more immediately commercial, I wonder. Well. Perhaps the, the the full story uh, of how it's taken quite so long uh, is a little bit of a mystery. I suspect that you're right. I suspect that more easy to sell novels probably went into production first. I mean, his films, as you know, are strange and eerie and deadpan, particularly uh, The Lobster and Killing of the Sacred Deer. But they have a certain... Uh, easy commercial uh, sell to them, I would think, in a way that I can't imagine pitching. Certainly the original book of Poor Things came naturally to came naturally to studio. So maybe they wanted to prove they had what it takes to direct some other films first before taking on this more challenging project. I must confess my ignorance right now. I haven't seen the film and I'm afraid I haven't read the book either, but I've, I've got some idea about what it's about, not least because of George's brilliant so piece. you're flying blindish. Here, Lucy. No, no, I've got, you know, I've got George's piece and a bit of research, yeah. I read a wonderful uh, description of it in some piece somewhere, um, which explained what happened and said, well, George, I want to say very briefly what it involves, and I'll tell you the explanation, which I enjoyed, about what happens at the beginning of the novel and the film. Yes, the film starts, certainly when we see it, uh, we see uh, Emma Stone's character, in a state of some distress, just as she pitches herself off a bridge and into the water below. Why she has done this remains a mystery for a good part of the film. But she is uh, fished out and ends up on the, the slab of one Dr. Godwin Baxter, who realises that she is heavily with child and uh, makes the decision to remove the child's brain, put it into uh, the woman's body and to reanimate her with the full Frankenstein-style uh, crackle of lightning. As you do, yeah. As and hence, I guess, him being called <laughs> Godwin. I yes, suppose this probably. is the yeah. Mary Godwin, Shelley, etc. So yes. there's, a, there's a clear sort of nod to, to, to Shelley's book, isn't there? There is. I mean, so, and certainly also it's notable that in the, the novel, in Alistair's novel, that Godwin's full name is given as Godwin Biss Baxter. Okay. That seems to seal that particular deal, doesn't it? Does. It does. So just to say that I, I read quite a deadpan account of what you've of what you've just told us. And then it said, so her the baby's brain is taken out and put in, into the woman by an unorthodox scientist. 
I thought it was one of you could say that again. Unorthodox, going his own way, we might say. He's one of a kind. What struck me about, you know, it's so obviously a difficult novel to adapt, mainly because it's very textually interesting. It has loads of layers, doesn't it? Accounts of events that are superseded and quarrelled with by others. Different perspectives, found documents, Gray's own illustrations. I wonder how that gets woven into a film does it work well it seems uh largely the novel uh as you know as alex's takes place that the bulk of it takes the form of a science kind of science fantasy uh narrative which is narrated by mccandless who is uh, uh a student of baxter's who falls in love with bella and it's his narrated version of events and then there's a prose section in letters from from Bella Baxter, uh, then there is the book is prefaced. The the book as a whole is prefaced with an introduction by Alistair Gray, who considers himself simply to be the editor of these found texts. And then there is a later following adjoining document uh, by Bella slash Victoria herself, which takes issue with a great amount of what we've already read, talking about its uh, uh, how it's stolen from other texts like Frankenstein and, uh, and Pygmalion. And this undercuts a huge amount of uh, what we've already read. What they decide to do for the film, for the most part, is to simply do a straight narrative run of the middle section, just McCandless's telling of it. That seems kind of problematic to me. I mean, was it? Uh, yes, I think so. I think that uh, it's a tricky way of adapting it. Uh, I certainly don't know how one would have gone about adapting the entire book. I, I think that would have been a very, very challenging film and certainly a challenging one to sell to uh, to movie studios. But certainly it does have the effect of undercutting one of the key kind of running themes of the book, which is who gets to tell Bella's story, who has ultimate control over Bella's life. And, and there is a lot of back and forth throughout the book over this. And there's a lot of in-joke and there's a lot of metatextual kind of riffing on behalf of Gray. But what ends up being cut is Bella slash Victoria's own own words and own account of things, which puts a very, very different spin on things and certainly introduces a much greater amount of, uh, a greater deal of ambiguity into all of the male characters. Well, it's, I mean, the issue, I guess, really, let's cut to the chase, is that what they have created, what Godwin has created, is a woman of appetites, a woman of libidinousness and a woman who, you know, exhausts some of the men that she comes across, which, of course, immediately says sort of male fantasy. And if you don't have the woman then undercutting that account, that seems to take away something quite important. Yes, absolutely. I think that's right. And it takes away Bella or Victoria. She later goes by. It takes away her her sense of destiny, her sense of self-making, which seems to me to be a such an important part of what this, the film and the book are both about, or certainly should be about. So it strikes me as a an odd thing to have almost no reference to this, to not let Emma Stone's character have her own, have her own say or to interrupt the narrative in some way. What we're hearing about in the reviews and things of it is that, and you say this as well, that it's a really terrific performance, particularly from her. Presumably it's, it's an actor's dream, isn't it? Because she's, she's sort of playing an awakening consciousness, basically, someone sort of coming to life. So presumably you can have a lot of fun with that. And she is apparently wonderful at it. That's right. My 
issues with the film more broadly aside that they've done a magnificent job casting it and Emma Stone is who has had such a wonderful uh, run of films as of late she is just terrific in this from start to finish uh, but yes as you say right at the start of the film she is particularly captivating as she the character that she plays is supposed to have been in her sort of mid to late 20s when her original death has happened and the by the time that we first meet her her brain is roughly around two to four years old and so stone clearly has enormous fun with this uh so there's the kind of the uh the kind of the tight legged waddle and the way that she takes kind of repetitive words and synonyms from uh baxter and repeats them and that her manners are to start with crude and inarticulate but what she does so cleverly throughout the film is she makes these rapid changes of a brain uh, a brain and a mind rapidly playing catch up and she's brilliant at conveying that to the viewer throughout the whole film just tell me george about another thing that is missing not to dwell on the negatives but this is a novel you know very rooted in glasgow and glasgow's not really in the film is it uh there have been other voices particularly uh some writers in scotland who have made a more severe note of this than i have it did strike me as slightly odd that they that they have omitted glasgow entirely and the reason i think that it's so strange is that most of the most if not all of the film is set on these big sound stages the city of lisbon and the cruise ship these are all huge designed set stages including the scenes that take place in london so if that's the case and given that baxter maintains the glaswegian accent which he does rather well i think it seems uh, odd to take it away from glasgow completely if if you're doing it a sound stage then why not say it's why not say it's glasgow why why transpose it over to London? And so perhaps this is for, for viewers, but given that Glasgow is both central to so much of Gray's work and certainly to this book, uh, which takes place in the, uh, as Gray writes in his kind of his faux introduction, it all takes place in the, uh, in the wake of declining industries in Glasgow and kind of in the Thatcherite era or post-Thatcherite era. And it feels a shame not to give at least some tribute or nod to the city that was so so much a part of his work and so much a part of this book. On that theme of the the political consciousness of the book, I mean, you you are sort of struck by how well the book ends in this vein, and the film too has remained close to it, doesn't it? it ends with Bella as quite a different kind of consciousness. Yes, I think that's true. I think that. Uh, the bell that we see at the at the end of the film is wholly different. One of the things that, as we get towards the the end of the book, and as uh, the character of Victoria takes her own narrative, what we see is that she is much more strident and ardent in her uh, left wing belief. She sees herself as something of a. She does a lot of work for the poor, particularly poor women in Glasgow at the sides of society, and she views her husband, who so far we've only ever heard of uh, good things by his own words. She sees him as rather something of a, a, a kind of a mild clinger on to her. And she sees her success as rather unrelated to his. And it, the, the book rounds up with this wonderful kind of faux letter in praise of the results of the 1945 Labour landslide. And what I found slightly interesting about the film version is that it's almost completely depoliticized in this way, that some of the choices they make throughout the film are odd, I think, in that she 
She's very, very uh, anguished when she sees the slums in the city of Alexandria, which is one of the stops she makes with the with the loathsome solicitor. And yet this, by the end of the film, seems not to have phased her at all. She seems un, un, unbothered by this. She seems unbothered by the wider world and her, her stated duty to do better by the people of the world. And I find that to be a, certainly Gray's, Gray's way of telling it is a more challenging, it's a more ambiguous, it's a slightly more darkly muted ending to things, but not one without it. It's not one without a sense of hope. And I think the, the film loses some of that uh, by taking away some of Bella's more kind of strident political ambitions and ideas. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to say, Yorgos Lanthimos, it's not been an unqualified success, according to the TLS reviewer. And uh, frankly, Lucy, uh, you know, you've got to send George to films that he's going to enjoy more as the editor of this piece. Can I say that it looked as though it was going to be... And it's not, you didn't think it was terrible, did you, George? It's just it was kind of good in part, maybe? As I say towards the end, there is much praise. And this is, and despite my reservations about this being such a different, such a split away from Gray's work, it is, it's still very, very definitely a, a Lanthimos film. It is, it is still a, uh, the work of a director with a very, very set and particular vision and a very, very clever way of shooting and a terrific way of getting uh, best performances out of his uh, out of his cast members, but then again, I am always happy to go and uh, see films. I think that uh, even to be challenged by them, I think is a is pleasure, especially if I get to write about them for for the paper. There you go. See, Ooh. Alex, <laughs> I do. I'm sorry. I should keep. We out don't of have it. to like. It's not my business. It's not my business. <laughs> I'm not in charge. However, George, I'm sorry to say we've come to the end of our time, but thank you so much for coming and talking to us about four things. Not at all. It's been a pleasure as always. Still to come on the show, Peter Gagan on how net zero is the latest political football. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now, last year was the hottest year ever recorded by some margin. This, among many other things, makes the question of how and when we reach the UK's stated aim of net zero an ever more pressing one. The subject has been in the news recently, you may have seen, since the British Prime Minister started talking about weakening some of the measures introduced to meet the target. And there are three new books out which address net zero and its implications and which the author and journalist Peter Gagan has written about for us this week, clearing us a path through the thickets of domestic and global politics, climate action and economics. Peter, many thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Can you talk us through, you give a brilliant overview of where we are now, can you talk us through this recent change of approach from the government towards net zero? 
Yes, it's been a big fall fast, really, in some respects in the UK. And I think sometimes when you're in the UK, as I am, and many of your listeners probably are too, it can feel as if, you know, we're used to these conversations around climate from what's happening in the UK, whether we're doing well or not so well, etc. But it's quite important to think that the UK actually has been a real climate leader, actually. It was the first country to set legally binding climate goals, which it did in 2008. The UK has cut emissions by more than 40% since 1990. So the UK internationally is seen as a bit of a climate leader. And what's really strange in that context is in the last few months, there's been a real pushback against the net zero uh, agenda, basically the government's legally binding commitment to reach net zero by 2050. And that pushback has been led by the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. So Rishi Sunak in September came out with quite a, a kind of an unusually dyspeptic speech where he was really kind of criticizing a lot of net zero measures and the wider agenda and kind of cutting some um, various bits of uh, legislation, some of which didn't actually exist, but kind of feeding into this narrative that net zero costs too much, that it's something that you know we're, we're rushing too quickly at. And since then, there's been a bit of a constellation, especially on the conservative right in Britain, against net zero, basically. And net zero more and more feels like it's part of a culture war, a kind of inchoate culture war in British politics, rather than what it was until quite recently, under many conservative governments, a kind of accepted direction of travel for British policy. Mm. One thing that, you, as you say, you highlighted it in your piece, I hadn't realised how much we were a world leader. I think, as you know, when you're just looking at it from this point of view, it's kind of, you know, talking about whether people want wind turbines or where the gas is going to come from. You think of it domestically, but I hadn't realised we were such a world leader. And so this has kind of global ripples, doesn't it, as well as domestic ones? Yes, very much so, because we are in this space where net zero has become more of a cultural war internationally. You see it in the United States. You know, the United States is far, far along the line in that respect. But on the Republican side, on the, the GOP side, basically rubbishing climate science is, is an article of fate, <laughs> if that's mm. not too much of a mixed metaphor. But you do have internationally the sense in which a lot of uh, pushback against uh, climate science is happening. A lot of a sense of like kind of net zero's become something of, of, a, of, a, of a kind of convenient thing to kick. And within that context, what's happening in Britain is actually really, really interesting. You see a prime minister, and as I argue in my piece, really for kind of political expediency is taking this position. I don't think there's nothing about Richard Sunak's biography that suggests he's particularly climate sceptic. There's also nothing about his biography that suggests he's particularly environmentally interested full stop. And it feels like for political expedience, he's taken a position that, yes, this is a this is a useful thing for me to criticise, that there's an electorate out there, there's a section of the electorate that this will chime with. And what that's doing is it's actually creating you know, quite a, a new constellation of forces. In, in my piece, I interviewed um, Chris Skidmore, who's uh, got a book out as well. He's a uh, conservative, yeah. well, was the conservative climate change czar effectively and since I've wrote the piece Chris Skidmore's actually resigned from the government full stop and he resigned because the government's uh, decision to grant new oil and gas licenses for the North Sea and when mm. I was speaking to him for this piece Skidmore was really quite scathing about his party and about uh, about the prime minister on this um what's happening is I think in deciding to go down this route, um, Rishi Sunak is, is actually creating a bit of a fissure in British politics around the climate, where I think it's fair to say it didn't really exist beforehand. Because everyone was kind of more or less on board with it. But it does sound as though, I mean, one of the things that you say is that you actually think this isn't really going to be a big 
vote winner or vote loser either way. But it sounds a little bit like what he's doing is pacifying certain elements of the Tory party. And I hadn't heard, for example, of something called net zero scrutiny group. Yes, this is quite interesting. There's a group called the the Net Zero Scrutiny Group emerged a couple of years ago, very much modelled on the European Research Group, the ERG, which came to prominence during Brexit, just after Brexit, the ERG of group of backbench Conservative MPs was, was very kind of pivotal, was always being quoted in the media. The Net Zero Scrutiny Group actually is made up of many of the same people, it was effectively set up by a guy called Steve Baker, who's now a minister, a junior minister for Northern Ireland. Uh, it's leader in the Commons, a guy called Craig McKinley. But basically what it's acted as is a lightning rod for the Conservative right, for kind of climate sceptics in the Conservative right, or those who feel like net zero has gone too far, to kind of uh, to rally around. And they've actually been very effective. If you mm. look at the kind of things they've been arguing for, a lot of them actually the Prime Minister has delivered for them over the last few months. And I think it's it speaks as particularities and peculiarities of British politics. And we can actually see it with a very different issue, the Rwanda asylum debate that's going on in Britain at the moment, where the government doesn't have as big a majority as it needs to be able to do whatever it wants. So Rishi Sunak feels, I think, at some level, kind of he does need to keep some of these, his, these supporters on side. And at the same time, as I argue my piece, what you've also seen is a conservative media in Britain that has increasingly become much more kind of at least net zero sceptic than it was. And that also, I think, feeds into this background. You know, you've there's more quizzical pieces around net zero in, in newspapers than there were, say, this time last year. And you can actually see it from some uh, recent studies that were done, actually, I, I read after, after I'd written this piece. So you've got this kind of constellation where you've got this issue that in terms of voters is, is not a big deal is kind of it's not something that they're they're naming as a big issue but it's starting to become uh, a fissure within british politics less to do with where the voters are more to do with the particularities of, of the conservative party so then when you have them doing something like fighting and you mentioned this too the by-election in uxbridge they will go all out to fight it on an issue like eulez and that will appear to be the big issue, even though actually, in terms of the policy itself, wasn't to do with net zero, it was to do with cleaning up the air. But they will exploit it as what you you describe as a wedge issue. Yes, and, and they were, it's an attempt to construct it as a wedge issue. But to go back to your last question as well, does it, I don't really think from talking to people I spoke to for this piece that it's going to be particularly successful. So do mm. you... Ule's case with Uxbridge, where the Conservatives won the by-election last July in Boris Johnson's old seat. They won it by barely 500 votes in what had been a rock-solid Conservative seat. They ran very hard against Ulis, the, the ultra-low emission zone. That's a very specific issue in a very specific part of London. You know, there's an argument where that issue would only exist in kind of bits of what you call the London donut. There isn't really an, a national strategy you can try and articulate around that. And I think Rishi Sunak is trying to do that. You know, if you look that speech he made back in September, where he kind of announced this big change in direction, or at least rhetorical change on net zero, he talked about a family in a terraced house in Darlington, save, he was saving them from having to spend £10,000 installing a heat pump. You know, never mind that you don't have to install heat pumps. Or that no, it's not the law that you have to oh, install it. You don't have to do it. Um, <laughs> or even um, some of them retail at about three grand and less. The other issue is that by talking about something like Darlington, I think it's an attempt to try and make this a UK-wide issue. 
But there doesn't seem a lot of, at least at this point from political, from pollsters, there doesn't seem to be that much evidence to suggest that's the case, that there is necessarily this trapped in constituency that really care about these, you know, that, that, that share this scepticism. I don't see why anybody in Darlington would be bothered about the ULES, you know, for me, which it was kind of fought on, as you say, and, and which has nothing to do with net zero, really. This is exactly it. These are not necessarily UK wide issues. And I think that's going to be a real challenge for the Conservatives in, in turning this into a big UK wide issue. The danger is, though, that even in having this shift in rhetoric, that you do embolden people for whom this is a big culture war issue who are very engaged by it. And that's kind of what we saw in the US. We saw the environment moving from being a bi- from being a kind of bipartisan issue in which Democrats and Republicans polled in the 80s actually had very similar views in terms of the environment and their care about it into it becoming a culture war issue. And, and frankly, what your views in the environment then became a predicator of what your political views were more generally. And that did happen from a small rump kind of growing outwards. And I think that is a danger in this real politicization of net zero, that it becomes yeah. this, you know, it becomes a political football. So this is when you get the Reform Party, you know, the, that ground that they're both fighting for, the Conservatives and the more right-wing parties like Reform, they sort of begin to elide a bit. This is exactly it, and they start to... In doing so, and I've, I think this could become more, this illusion could become stronger because you can see in these polls that are happening now where the Conservatives are very far behind and they're stuck between two places. Do they appeal to potential voters that they're going to lose to Labour or do they appeal to potential, which are kind of more on the centrist side of politics, or do they appeal to voters on the right who they risk or fear are going to move to reform, especially if Nigel Farage goes there? And it feels like Rishi Sunak is in the place where he wants to appeal to the 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 latter more than the former because I think it's quite hard to do the two and in doing so you do actually end up you know uh, vindicating views around the environment and around uh, net zero the kind of reform style views this is all this is all overplayed it's all a bit of a it's all a bit of a chimera and really we shouldn't be wasting our time on what you know quote unquote green crap. Mm. Yes. Having said that, to be fair to the Conservatives, not all of them are on board, are they? Because Chris Skidmore is 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 a prime example, isn't he? He's the author of one of these books. And as you say in your piece, he says, look, I'm a Conservative. That's what I am. But on this issue, he's he's now become colourblind. Yes. And I think that's the challenge for the Conservatives, too, is that it's by no means that every Conservative and certainly not every Conservative voter. The, the difficulty is if, if you look how far the party has gone, the fact that Chris Skidmore having been so vocal on net zero, having gone, I think, on, on quite a journey himself on this. It's very interesting talking to him for this piece about, about his own views on this issue and, and being given a ju- junior ministership around the issue. And, and I think, you know, really getting to grips with it and becoming in some ways, you know, a, a convert, I'd say. The fact that he resigned from the government over its handling of the environment, I think, does speak to uh, to like really quite deep fissures within the Conservative Party around this. So there's some Conservatives, and we kind of saw this. It, in some ways, it does feel a little bit like a, a replay of some of the debates you saw after Brexit, reading this, and some of the alignments. Um, and you see some Conservatives who do feel like this is going far too far. But the challenge is how to articulate that within the party, or at least how to have any traction within the party. And Skidmore ultimately, I think, decided that there wasn't a way to have that within the party and just and resigned and there will be a by-election for his seat. And the fact he was going to stand down anyway, I think does give you some indication of the strength of feeling from him that he'd rather than wait until, what, a few months 
he actually decided no he wanted to, to go now he didn't want to be associated anymore yeah. and that was specifically about the awarding of of oil and gas licenses wasn't it which is clearly a major move from sunak to decide that actually you know we're going to grant these fossil fuel licenses in spite of and we're going to make it seem like it's an enormous value to this country even though as you say it's not going to be a very great value to the inhabitants of the UK yeah that it was directly in response to the the, the oil and gas licenses for the north sea and it, the argument the problem is the argument that's been made around the north sea doesn't make any sense because it said that you know we need to be secure in our energy but it's an international market and the vast majority of north sea oil is going to be sold into the international market so it will have a negative effect on uh, british consumers and you know the irony is actually 80% of rosebank is owned by the norwegian oil company equinor the state oil company uh, who actually also received almost four billion pounds in a tax break to develop the site, which is part of the loophole in the oil and gas windfall tax law. So the argument that's been made actually doesn't make much sense. Often it's that sounds a bit technical, maybe, because that's the only reason I can give for hearing ministers constantly rolling it out and it being accepted. But on its own sense, in terms of security, it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, the idea that post-Ukraine by exploring in the North Sea or by drilling in the North Sea, we make the UK more secure. You know, it doesn't really stand up to much scrutiny because we don't, unless you're going to nationalise uh, the oil and gas industry in the North Sea, and I have a feeling the Conservatives don't intend to do that. <laughs> no, there isn't much indication of it. If this is the Conservatives, well, this is the official um, position, certainly the weakening, because as you say, came from the Prime Minister. How about Labour? Because there has been some criticism of them recently that they're not making enough distinction between the two parties, hasn't there? But on this issue, it's it's a bit different. Yes, it, it's interesting. And I talk in the piece about this idea of wedge issues and, you know, and how politics today is often about creation, exploiting these wedge issues. And the, broadly speaking, the environment has been one issue in which uh, Labour has been willing to actually stand, you know, stand out a step with the Conservatives and say we would do something different. Um, but it's interesting, even since this piece was written, I think there's been a, there's, there's been a bit more squishiness around this from Labour. So initially, last year, the Labour Party came out and said, we're going to spend £28 billion a year on green infrastructure. We're talking about a Green New Deal. It's going to be huge. It's a huge amount of investment. And mm. predicated on the, on the idea, which you know a lot of economists stand by, which is the idea that actually, you know, in spending our way into the transition economy and spending our way to transition, you can spur economic growth. It's, you know, it's kind of classical Keynesian position. It definitely has its, has its adherence. That's been rolled back quite a bit since. And that figure, it's interesting how, it'd be interesting to see just how strong that figure can stand. And um, there's been some briefing in the last couple of weeks about how that figure might change. And it does look as if that's going to be the thing that they're going to focus on a lot. And it was interesting in writing this piece, I um, spoke to uh, Michael Jacobs, who's now a professor of political economy at Sheffield University, but he used to be a political economy uh, advisor to Gordon Brown. And he was very involved, actually, when I said earlier about how Britain brought a commitment to um, reducing legally binding commitment on climate targets in 2008. Actually, uh, Michael Jacobs was very involved in that. And also so was inadvertently actually David Cameron and his repositioning of the Conservatives as if you remember, vote blue, go green. So mm. it was an interesting moment. And Michael Jacobs uh, told me that for him, he felt that Labour doesn't want to be seen as being very radical. Um, and they might weaken their positions further on the climate. But the big danger is actually in, in an environment where 
you do need to be making, you know, actually doing big things in government. Um, and where and a lot of people, a lot of sensible people do seem to think you know, there's a there's a potential energy transition. That's that's what Chris Skidmore talks about. There's a you know a potential economic boom uplift from an energy transition. If Labour is really does water down too much this promise around investing in green initiatives that you know they will struggle to do in office what needs to be done but in terms of rhetoric Keir Starmer I think on this one issue is very far away from Rishi Sunak. Mm -hmm. Do you think Peter though the issue with the energy transition is that it is coming it will come so these parties have to get behind it whether here or anywhere else in the world and it there is going to be a scrabble and things are going to become very difficult for a time but who gets behind it first is a as an indicator of who actually is going to be able to govern for longest or am I making it far too simplistic no and that would be very much the argument in Chris Gidmore's uh, book and his his kind of that would be his argument I think and actually probably Keir Starmer's too that that's the situation and actually if you read the other one of the other books I reviewed as well Climate Capitalism by um, Akshat Rati like that makes a similar argument that there's you know there is a kind of there's a moment we're going to have to transition it's going to have to happen pretty much every political leader of any you know size says that believes that well why not get front and center of it and I think that's when it's some of the moves that Sunak has made in the policy front have been really interesting because they've they've actually really frustrated business. The kind of switcheroo on some of the policies around incentivizing uh, transition, which have kind of appealed or at least hoped to appeal to some sort of electorate, conservative electorate base, have really annoyed business because business are actually like, look, we want to transition. We want you to help us transition. And we like this. This is where we're going. We what we want to be able to plan for this, and that yes, was yeah. the argument. That's very much the argument in the green space around this. That like the transition economy has to happen, and the question is how does it how does it happen, and who's going to be the world leaders of that? Mm. And in the other one though, the other the other book because there are two sort of books about how it might happen, aren't there? And then then this third one that you reviewed, what's it called? The Price is Wrong. That that argument that, that seems to say that there isn't enough profit in there for big businesses, so it suggests that it should all be nationalised. Is that right? Brett Christopher's book is a very interesting one. I have to say, I found a, a fascinating kind of analysis. It, it, he's looking at a very specific slice of transition, which is renewable energy, which is not, in some ways actually some things are transitioning, whereas renewable energy is is actually you know it's it's always been green and it's just about creating more of it. And he makes a very interesting argument because a lot of people might have seen the headlines about how the price of renewable energy has dropped. It's much lower than it was. And there's a lot more renewable energy coming on stream, which is all great. And the fact that the price has dropped sounds really good. It sounds like, okay, this is going to come and it's going to work. But Mm. the argument that Christopher makes is really interesting is that unlike oil and gas, so when the price of oil goes up, you know, it's it's great for oil and gas companies that can make more profits. And when it goes down, it's it's bad for them. But when it comes to extract oil extraction, the, the price of oil extraction is almost all up front. It's the price of going out to the North Sea, drilling, which is incredibly expensive, and then surfacing the oil. Once you started surfacing the oil, a lot of your already your costs are quite literally sunk. They're sunk into the ground, but a lot of your costs are done. So the more oil you get out, the more money you make. Renewable energy is very different. The same wind that blows across northern Germany can be harnessed in northern Germany, can be harnessed in Denmark when it blows across Germany, can be harnessed in Scotland when it blows across Scotland. You know, it's the same product. 
the cost when it comes to renewables is both in setting up the infrastructure to harness the renewables, but also massively in storage. Um, and what the argument that Christopher is making is that the fact that as the prices go down, on one level, it sounds fantastic, but actually what it also is indicative is that there isn't, it makes it actually even less profit for companies to invest in, in the renewable sector. Because they have to pay for the storage as well, and that's relatively high cost. They have to pay for yeah. the storage as well, yeah. exactly. So you end up with even more even more renewable energy, but even lower profit margins. Um, and that's particularly, and it's very hard to get people in, to invest. There's a great quote from the former head of, um, it's either Shell or uh, Chevron in, in Christopher's book, who says, you know, who's asked not long ago, why don't you uh, invest more in renewable energy? Because, you know, my job is to make money, not to lose it. And that's indicative of this actual, well, Christopher's argument that the problem in some ways is quite unique to the renewable sector. It is not necessarily a cross-sector problem, but it's quite unique to the renewable sector. Mm. That as price gets driven down, profits, which are, are profits are no bigger, are, are not increasing. Profits are still actually really low. And, and it's still quite an, an uncertain, um, uncertain landscape. And the problem is where the politics comes into that then, the kind of politics we're talking about, Rishi Sunak, with changing the legislative landscape is that that makes it even harder for companies to operate or to operate in a way that feels like they're sure of where things are going. Because the reality has been to get renewables on stream, they have almost all needed uh, some state subsidies for the, because of the nature of renewable in, industries. And so you end up in this place where companies, are, if you're an, uh, a fossil fuel company needing to make returns for your shareholders, now say you are, um, you're Exxon, you're looking at Guyana, where Exxon are going big at the moment into drilling in Guyana, they reckon they're going to have a quarter of all their oil and gas is going to come from Guyana by the end of this decade. You're looking at Guyana versus, say, a big renewables play. Well, Guyana is going to make you, a, you know that that's guaranteed returns, whereas the renewables play is actually very, very, very uncertain. Um, and that's the argument. So to, it, I found his book really interesting for, for kind of rethinking you know, his argument is kind of a fundamental rethink about how the renewables industry works and why it's different. And I think that thing is really important, why it's different, because mm. unlike your, your oil that's under the ground, you've only got the oil that's under the North Sea only exists once. It can't re-exist. Once it's used, it's used. The wind does not only exist once. It exists not just once. It exists continuously, but it can exist continuously in different locations simultaneously. That's very different to oil and gas. And the problem we have is that we have an entire energy sector that was designed, understandably, on fossil fuels that we're now trying to retrofit for renewables in a way that ne doesn't necessarily take it, like, be cognizant of the the massive difference, the existential difference, almost between renewables and non-renewables. Mm -hmm. So, well, it's not exactly a different argument from the other two, but it's it's more sort of specific and saying that we have to, I suppose, what is it saying that we have to think differently about different areas? It's not only that you have to think about how you get to, to net zero, but you've got to be very hard headed and specific about the different areas of how you get there. I think that's exactly how I would see it. I think it, it's arguing about that we need to be more, you know, it's, it's, I must say, in fairness to Christopher's book, it's a very, very, very densely researched book. He's done a lot of work on this and it's it, it's very impressive in that regard. And I think that's it. It's saying that these are, you know, there's there's top level issues here, but there's also very, very sector specific things to be uh, cognizant of. And what's fascinating, again, though, thinking about politics within that is how the role that politics can play both to 
to foster that and improve the scenario, but actually more often it seems to be to do the opposite, to you know to switch policies midstream, to take political advantage of certain things around the environment in a way that actually can really kind of a really negative short-term and long-term effect. That idea of short-termism is presumably what makes people who are very interested in and knowledgeable about reaching net zero just tear their hair out though because a short-term government policy is the last thing you need that's the thing that really comes out actually from all of these books is that is the is if you have a government that's just thinking around electoral cycles and particularly appealing to certain sections of the electorate regardless of whether it's the right thing to do or not then you can end up in a really really bad place and i think that's a that's probably almost certainly not just a uk problem got european Mm. elections coming up soon as well in which climate i think is going to be part of the agenda we've seen the rise of farmers parties in mm. major europe possibly in ireland too around a lot of these issues and the construction of net zero as a zero-sum game as a us versus them i think that's that's a real part of the problem here yeah mm-hmm. well thank you so much for um as I say, showing us showing us the way through, and we're going to all be—I don't know what the right expression is. I don't know whether we should be holding our breath or crossing our fingers or watching with interest. Should we say watching with interest? We should say that there is there is the mention in your piece of that most alluring and nonsensical uh, of um, political rhetoric. The seven bins argument is given absolutely, you give it very short shrift. We were never going to have seven bins. No, there was no seven bins. They weren't there was gone. no seven bins. Seven bins is one of the only things that might get me to vote for a political party that I didn't agree with in any other respect. I I love bin day <laughs> and I would love to sort my rubbish into seven bins. However, it's not true. Not not gonna happen. Not gonna, not gonna happen. happen. <laughs> Peter, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you very much. I've massively enjoyed it. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Peter Gagan and George Berridge. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark, goodbye. Goodbye.